Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to be talking with Senator Maisie Hirono, Democrat from Hawaii. She's the first Asian American woman and the only immigrants currently serving in the U.S. Senate. Her new memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story, is an inspiring account of one woman coming into her personal and political power, a heartwarming homage to the women who raised her, and a behind-the-scenes look at some of the most fraught moments of the Trump administration. Later in this hour, we'll be revisiting a portion of our conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. First, our conversation with Senator Hirono. So what inspired you to write this book? My husband had been suggesting that I write a memoir, and I finally decided that my mother, who had suffered two strokes no longer, able to tell her incredible story, I, I wanted to do this and dedicate the book to her. And so um, I that's, that was the impetus, really, for this book. I, I have a... a I had, she passed away last month, I had an amazing mother who changed my life by bringing me to this country, and uh, I wanted to do this to tell her story, and that of my grandmother also, who was a a very (laughs) amazing person herself. In fact, the subtitle is An Immigrant Daughter's uh, Story. Uh, Tell me about about that. This is just incredible. Uh, Your mother, uh, you know, came essentially along with you and uh, one of your brothers. So first of all, why why did uh, why did she leave Japan? My mother uh, escaped literally uh, from an abusive husband and his abusive family uh, and brought her children. And she had to do it uh, by uh, stealth because if uh, if he had found out, he would have stopped her certainly from bringing any uh, bringing us, but my mother changed my life by bringing us to this country, escaping an abusive marriage to a father who, uh, uh, to her husband, to my father who I never got to know. And so um, uh, I didn't know anything about Hawaii and America. My goodness. I was raised on a little rice farm in rural Japan. Uh, So this was a total, total change. I spoke no English or anything. And uh, we, we were poor. And beginning in, in the beginning in Hawaii, it, my mother worked really hard with uh, no such thing as a safety, uh, social safety net or anything. She worked hard with little pay, no health care, no benefits to take care of us. And she brought the two older kids, me and my older brother, because we would be old enough to go to school. And we, uh, to the, she had to make the really tough decision to leave my younger brother. Wayne in Japan because there would be nobody in Hawaii to take care of him while she worked. Um, and your mother, uh, I think, worked uh, two jobs, low pay each, to, to keep you guys afloat. Yes. Yes. So she worked for a Japanese language newspaper as a typesetter, and, and that was not anything she ever did in Japan. But uh, she is a very uh, focused, determined person, and she learned how to do it. and. The pay was low, so she took a second job with a catering company, and she would uh, do these evening catering jobs. So uh, she was working most of the time, 
my older brother and I, we got our English names. She decided we should have English names. So she named me Maisie, and she named my older brother Roy, and while we were at it, she named my younger brother Wade. So uh, we were original latchkey kids, I have to say, <laughs> while my mother worked. Uh, the book is called Heart of Fire. What are you talking about there? It is a description of my mother who had a heart of fire because uh, it takes tremendous courage uh, and a risk-taking to uh, bring uh, eventually three children and her grandparents to America so that we could get away from my father and uh, start a new life for ourselves. But little did we know that uh, <laughs> that I would get into politics or all of that is in the future. So my own journey... Uh, was uh, very, um, uh, how shall I say, it's unpredictable, I would say. But my mother was uh, very, very supportive of all, of all of the different things that I did, which were not the usual kinds of things that young girls did. But it really expanded my horizons. And I had a mother who didn't, not once, say, when are you going to get married and when are you, when are you going to have kids? <laughs> that took a lot of pressure off me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier your grandmother, who apparently had the the same spirit. Yes, she did. She came to this country as a picture bride, to, uh, and, and she married my grandfather, basically sight unseen. And and uh, my grandfather had come to Hawaii to work on the plantations at only age sixteen, so he didn't have much. Uh, formal education, and then my grandmother decided that she would come here as a picture bride, and so she left everything she knew. She had a comfortable life in Japan, but uh, I think she thought this would be a good thing for her, and and she came to Hawaii and worked really hard on the plantations. You can imagine what life was like for her, and she determined that uh, she would start a business uh, so she was quite entrepreneur. They started a bathhouse uh, moving away from the plantation to downtown Honolulu. Then she also began to um, send money back to Japan because she fully intended to go back to Japan. A lot of the immigrant laborers who came to Hawaii uh, intended to go back, and not many of them could because they didn't have enough money. But my mother being the, my grandmother being the entrepreneur business person that she was, so she takes my mother, who was born in Hawaii at age 15, to, to Japan, a place that my mother was not familiar with. So my grandmother took her children to a country that they didn't know, and then my mother brought me to a country that I didn't know. So it, it's a, quite the journey for our family to start life uh, over three times, first in Hawaii, then back to Japan, then back to Hawaii. What was it like growing up uh, in Hawaii? This is a very diverse um, place. Yes, thankfully. And I, I am even more thankful of that diversity and the fact that we appreciate the other cultures and we intermarry at a higher rate than just probably any other state. And so very diverse. I didn't know it then. All I knew was that this was a really nice place, but it wasn't Japan. And I... I miss my grandmother a lot because she raised me in Japan from the time I was three to just before I came. So I lived with her for five years, and there was a time when I, when I knew her better than I, I knew my own mother. So it was quite the adventure, but you know, the focus was really on uh, acculturating us. I was discouraged from speaking Japanese, and the whole idea was to fit in to this new country. 
So there was a lot of time spent doing that, and not to mention my mother working all the time. So uh, it, I knew that we uh, we were poor and we were struggling, and that that informs a lot of the of the kinds of priorities that I have uh, in my political life. That kind of background. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, your background, how it uh, fits with uh, you know, some of the legislation that you support. Uh, maybe we talk about health care. You, you mentioned there certainly wasn't any social safety net for at least at that point for your no. mother and you. So, uh, growing up, growing up, and my mother had very low paying jobs with no health care, no benefits, and so I was really scared as a child. Mom would get sick, and she wouldn't be able to go to work. No work, no pay, no food. Uh, even when she was working, we would uh, run out of food by the end of the month. And so we lived really simply, ate really simply in a one-room boarding house for the first uh, two years of uh, our time. And uh, so, uh, you know, all, all of that. And then my grandparents were sponsored, and we were able to reunite as a family. But it was still very much a, a humble beginning. We would move every two years. I kept changing schools every two years. I'd have to... Uh, make new friends. I I learned to pretty much be quite self-sufficient because we would move (laughs) every two years. My mother kept trying to improve our living situation. Um, And and so um, I really thought, though, that in spite of the very unique background, I I didn't really talk about the fact that I was an immigrant. (laughs) People in Hawaii didn't know that I was an immigrant until I started running for office, basically. And there was a lot of my immigrant life that they didn't know what it was like growing up in Japan, what it was like coming to Hawaii. But uh, it was literally that kind of background, my desire to do something that would give back to a country that gave me opportunities I never would have had. Japan. They definitely never would have been able to go to college. I definitely would not be running for office or doing that. Uh, I was raised on a little rice farm with my grandparents in a rural part of Japan. Um, and so uh, going to the university also really opened my eyes to uh, protesting the Vietnam War. And that's eventually what uh, what was my political awakening to finally begin to question what my own country was doing in Vietnam and meeting some activist people who um, turned to politics as a way to make social changes. And I still believe that. And I ran a person's... I ran my first campaign of a guy in 1970. took me another 10 years of being really involved in politics in Hawaii before I ran for office myself, which is a pretty typical kind of trajectory for women uh, in our country, in my generation, there were low expectations, people telling me, you can't do it, you're not ready, all of that. <laughs> so that's uh, something that I think a lot of women in this country can relate to. And clearly, the uh, culture that I come from, being a vocal, confrontational, aggressive, we're not uh, rewarded, particularly coming from a woman. So it was a trajectory and a journey for me <laughs> to become this relatively outspoken person that I am now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly. Um, I want to uh, double back and uh, talk about this gender gap, at least that that was, and I don't know if it still is. Uh, so a, a man might go more directly, maybe run a campaign, then go directly to running for office. A woman, at least at that time, would <clears throat> uh, you know hesitate, and maybe for years, oh, uh, yes. to, to run for office. Yes. A lot of women thought that uh, uh, we weren't ready, we didn't have enough uh, experience, et cetera. So, you know, those are 
conditions that don't seem to stop the guys at all. As one of my staff people say, yeah, guys think that it's their God-given right to run for office. So for women, it, uh, the preparation time is usually longer, certainly was in my case. The good thing is that there are a lot of uh, young women in particular and, and minorities who are running for office and they're doing it and getting elected. I, I am very uh, reassured by, by that kind of activism. But for myself, it took me a while to uh, be the candidate myself. By that time, I had worked on three campaigns, all for men. And um, I, I, but even then, I decided that I only had a bachelor's degree, and I needed more credentials if I was going to uh, be, be uh, as effective as I wanted to be in the political arena. But I still wasn't thinking of running for office myself, so off I went to law school. And uh, I had been out of school, college, for five years, so uh, it was kind of interesting to be one of the older law students. But it was a good thing because I in law school. I was not on this uh, treadmill that <laughs> so many of my law school uh, the fellow students were. They, they were on a treadmill to get these big deal, um, you know, go go to these big law firms and all that. And that was that was never uh, a goal that I had. My goal was to get that credential <laughs> so that I could go back to Hawaii and start a public interest law firm or join a public interest law firm. There weren't any such law firm, so I was I, I joined the attorney general's office. That came close mm-hmm. to public interest law. <laughs> right. You mentioned uh, this journey from, uh, you know, holding back, not being outspoken, to becoming outspoken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, again, that's uh, yeah. that's socialization, right, to that the, the girls are taught, at least, at, I don't know if it's the, now, but at least at the time, yes. you don't speak out. Alisto, you mentioned the, the gender gap, um, and it still is, believe me. There's still views uh, about, for example, Asian women, how we're supposed to be quiet and cooperative, demure and all that. And, and clearly, um, if you recall the, the uh, Hillary's campaign against Trump, that's recent. I mean, look at the, the misogyny that, uh, that she had to put up with, and clearly in the 2008 campaign that Hillary was in, uh, there's just so much gender uh, uh, discrimination against her, and and it's just amazing when I reread some of the books of that race, like uh, Rebecca Tracer's book on Hillary's 2008 race, and then to realize that women get asked questions like, you know, is she likable enough? Do you think men are asked such questions? No. (laughs) So the gender gap still exists. Thankfully, we have a lot of very articulate women who ran for office, got elected, and, and I think that is that kind of view of leadership from women is changing. And, and <laughs> women are much more collaborative. I like to do things collaboratively, but if I have to, I will be uh, very vocal and aggressive about it mm-hmm. these days. Yeah. <laughs> Your uh, the more outspoken Senator Hirono uh, somewhat coincided with the rise and election of Donald Trump. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? No, it certainly isn't. One thing I can't stand uh, are bullies, and uh, so the, the Trump was the biggest bully of them all. It was unbelievable that he even got elected because watching him in his campaign and the, and how he acted and and the the. Take- you know, he's an admitted sexual predator and all of that, and the guy gets elected, and he proceeds to get even worse. And so at one point, I decided that um, I should speak up more because I, I, as a U.S. senator, I had a platform. But for the longest time, I was really not comfortable 
uh, speaking out or or talking to the national media. I spent my time before I was going to talk to media with uh, the Hawaii people. But it, Trump and his, his bullying and and one, I remember the moment when I spoke to a spray. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the spray. It's when all these media people from print and you know TV they they they, they kind of. Uh, uh, Locate themselves at the, at the end of a hallway in the Capitol or in, in in one of the buildings, and they kind of wait for one of us to step up to the mics and start talking. So uh, I remember that day when Trump was talking about my friend Kirsten Gillibrand coming to see him and begging him for help, and the innuendo was so atrocious and obnoxious. I thought. My gosh, so I was very upset by it, and, and so there was a spray as I was going toward my Judiciary Committee hearing, and my uh, my communications director said, uh, why don't you just step up and say what's been on your mind, because I've been talking to him about, you know, about what was being said about Kirsten. So I got up there and I said, you know, we have... We have a misogynist, we have a, a, a liar, a, a metasexual predator in the White House, and he should resign. And then I walked off to, to my hearing. So um, to be uh, able to speak like this, which is very contrary to uh, my culture and my background and uh, as a woman, as an Asian, um, and to be able to uh, speak plainly has been... Uh, um, a very freeing thing for me, and I and uh, I view myself as being more completely uh, myself now because I was always a very determined person <laughs> to uh, run for office and all of that. But I, I had I, I was very strategic in getting things done, but I just didn't have to be so noisy about it and vocal about it. But that is a part of me to be that way, and so I now view my speaking up plainly as. Um, as a gift to myself and to become a more complete me and it was a journey you are uh believe at this point the the only immigrant as a senator right um and you yes. talked you talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about what it meant for you to uh to be an immigrant to come to america i wonder if you could expand on that a bit uh, you talked about opportunities you had uh, here that you would not have had back in japan our country still calls to people from all over the world who uh, see our country as really a land of opportunity. And these are not just empty words to uh, to immigrants who come to our to our country um, in the hopes of creating a better life. And that was my experience. And yes, there are a lot of immigrants who come to our country who have great jobs and you know who uh, have all of that going for them. But for a lot of immigrants, they sh- they have the kind of experience in this country that I had. And so, yes, uh, comprehensive immigration re- reform is a is a priority of mine. Speaking up for uh, children who were taken away from their parents and the trauma that our country caused them with that and my own experience of my younger brother having been left in Hawaii, I mean in Japan when the rest of us came to Hawaii because he was too young to go to school and the trauma that stayed with him, uh, that trauma of separation is something that I experienced, the lack of health care as an immigrant, poor paying jobs uh, that's also uh, informs my uh, my wanting better pay for people and you know to create opportunities for people in this country 
That's that's really important to me. So I would not be doing what I'm doing. I doubt very much that I would have run for office if I did not have the immigrant experience of coming to a whole new country, having to fend and watching my mom struggle uh, and and doing things that, that uh, were different from what the rest of my classmates were doing, uh, such as, you know, working in a poor community and, and learning from that community that, that, uh, uh, that there, there was so much more to what uh, I could think about doing with my life. So all of these things uh, led to my running for office myself, but it was very strange <laughs> to become the candidate and not the one supporting other candidates, all men, <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Um, I wonder if you you talked a little bit earlier about um, growing up in Hawaii, very diverse culture, but uh, I guess the classic melting pot and interaction between cultures very much alive. Maybe contrast that with what we're seeing increasingly today in the country, which is you know, tribalism and, and separating out. Yes. I think we have a very divided country, and... Uh, we had a former president who stoked that kind of d- division, who uh, who really uh, referred to uh, Mexicans as, uh, you know, referred to Mexicans as rapists. He referred to Filipinos as animals who uh, imposed a Muslim ban. All of that uh, talked about this pandemic as a Chinese virus, and his administration referred to it as a kung flu, creating, uh, creating an environment where the, the animus, anti Asian American Pacific Islander animus that is in our country, just as racism is now far below the surface in our country, comes to the fore. So we've had a huge increase in hate crimes, totally unprovoked uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans. And we've all seen the videos of of uh, people being uh, kicked and beaten and uh, slashed, and it's been uh, horrendous. And this is a community that has always been viewed as the other, as a perpetual foreigner, and uh, felt invisible. So, uh, yes, a very divided country. And my hope is that, uh, that President Biden, who seeks to bring our country together through the kinds of legislation, like the, the rescue plan that, that helps working people and all these families out there who are struggling, regardless of whether you're, you know, whatever your racial or political background is, and, and then he wants to create jobs. It's, it's so it's such a relief to have a president who cares, as he said, about the entire country, not just the people who voted for him, not just the people who look like him. So oh, it is going to take time for, uh, I would say, truth and recon- reconciliation to take hold in our country. It doesn't come easily. We have lots and lots of people who still believe in the big lie. And now we have states that are considering hundreds of laws that uh, suppress votes, mainly of minorities and uh, the black community. Um, so you, it, it's, it's, it continues and we have to fight back. But, you know, I think that if we can enact legislation that create jobs that enables this country to get back on our feet economically, to get our schools reopened safely, I, I hope that that will help us to not uh, take out aggressions and everything else on people we see as not one of us. So that is my hope. It will take time. Just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I want to bring the conversation back to your mother. 
Um, I, I just want to quote you. You say, I watched my mom work incredibly hard, even when things were challenging or unfair, to provide a life for my brothers and me. The words that come to my mind are grit, resilience, uh, traits that we all need these days. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your mother and, and having these traits. My mother, uh, as I say, it was amazing that uh, she took control of her over her life when women in Japan, she was only 30. She told me at one point that she had to do all this by the time she was 30, otherwise she didn't think that she could do it. So courage that she had as a young woman to uh, literally put thousands of miles between my father and us, uh, that's risk-taking. So the life lessons that I, much of which I learned from her, is one person can make a difference because she made a di- difference. She changed my life with her courage and grit, perseverance. Uh, two is half the battle is showing up. She just kept going, showing up, not just physically, but just mentally and emotionally staying the course. And she showed me that. And the third is to take risks, to get out of your comfort zone. And she certainly did that. Every time we moved, for example, to a, a better house, you know, we would have to pay more in rent and, and everyone would be very concerned whether we could make rent, but she's a, she's a risk taker. She learned how to drive when she was in her 40s. <laughs> she decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to drive now. And she drove until into her 80s. And she was totally active in everything she did, just focused on everything she did. She, she showed me the perseverance. So that is the heart of fire. That, that she had, and she wasn't noisy about it. She wasn't beating her chest saying, look at me. No, she just went about doing things that, uh, that where she, le- she learned how to be a proofreader. I mean, here's a person who didn't even graduate from high school, and she goes to work for um, the, the newspaper uh, to become a proofreader. She, she became, I, I would say, the best because she really took that job to heart and and she had she created her own workbook all of that uh, and so pretty darn amazing that she did all these things and that's why I told her there's absolutely nothing I can do in my life mom that could even compare to what you did and that's that's her legacy mm-hmm. to me well, uh, we're out of time here. Thank you so much for telling us about your uh, your mother and uh, about your story. The memoir is called Heart of Fire, subtitles An Immigrant Daughter's Story, and uh, the author is Senator <laughs> Maisie Hirono. Senator Hirono, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. You take care. Okay. Be kind. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Aloha. Appreciate it. Aloha. <laughs> and bye. Bye, bye now. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. I reached uh, Senator Hirono. Uh, she was on a, a tight schedule there and uh, was only able to give us around a half an hour interview. We're grateful for that. Uh, uh, that means we have some extra time here on the program today. So following a break, we're uh, going to uh, give you a couple of excerpts from a 2017 conversation, very interesting conversation, uh, with uh, mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. And that's coming up. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, a hub of Utah startups, business, and tech, contributing articles and insights from the Utah community. Information on advertising in print and digital versions at siliconslopesmagazine.com. Support also comes from Cash Theater Company, presenting Monty Python's Spamalot.
a new musical lovingly ripped off from the classic film comedy Monty Python and the Holy Grail, showing at the Ellen Eccles Theatre August 13th through August 21st. Tickets available at cashtheater.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is streaming music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue. Listen 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR Tres button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo programas de música y charlas en español de Radio Bilingüe. Escuche las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. On the next On Being, storyteller and humorist Kevin Kling on the laughter and losses we grow into. A loss is a loss, whether it's a, a, a heart, a limb, a promise, a person. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Sunday mornings at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're grateful for a conversation with Senator Maisie Hirono. Again, the memoir is out, and it's called Heart of Fire. We have some more time, uh, obviously, in the program today, and we're going to turn to a conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. Her musical, Gracie and the Atom, won a Portland Drammy for original score. Her book, Physics for Rock Stars, was published in 2014 by Penguin Random House. And Christine McKinley hosted Brad Meltzer's Decoded on History Channel and Under New York on Discovery Channel. Here's a portion of our conversation from 2017. I want to talk a bit about um, this. You, you have a phrase, handmade life. Yeah. Um, so from, from your blog, by the way, christinemckinley.com is the website. So this blog post was titled Handmade Life. And you say, I think I've finally done it. My life is the perfect mix of engineering, writing, music, and getting muddy. Yeah. I've finally done it. So so tell me about that. So you're an engineer. Yes. That's your profession. You're, yes. You're right. You do music. We'll get into some of that a little later. Getting muddy. That's getting in the outer doors. I uh, yeah. I'm a trail runner and um, mountain biker and, and skier. And so I, there's just a certain amount of, I think from growing up in Alaska, maybe there's just a certain amount of being outdoors and um, just being tired and muddy that, that if I don't get that, I don't feel right. Mm-hmm. So handmade life, what does that mean? To me, it means even if you don't see it, if you don't see um, someone who has exactly the life, um, because I I didn't know anyone doing, I didn't know any women engineers at all when I was little. I barely know any now. Um, Go ahead and make that life by hand. Just take pieces and create something that no one else has ever created. Mm -hmm. Your life is is the greatest, most important science experiment you will ever participate in. Mm. So take even if it doesn't seem like if you just love macrame and you also want to be a chemical engineer, there is nothing wrong with combining those in some way. Mm-hmm. And the 
I guess the, the, the reason why sometimes you have to push through uh, is we do have cultural stereotypes. Don't we? Yeah, we have cultural stereotypes and we have really well-meaning people, you know, maybe even in our family who are trying to protect us from being laughed at or being hurt or failing. And you just have to, I just call that the blessing when someone says, oh, well, you better not go do that. Then, then you know you're probably doing the right thing because it's mm-hmm. something new and original and just um, thank them for their love and concern. And then uh, maybe don't give them all the information about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Don't give them all the information. Yeah, I mean, I've, I learned, um, especially when I was traveling a lot and traveling in, in not so safe places, I learned to just call my mom uh, every now and then when I was in somewhere safe. Mm. This is terrible advice yeah. to young people. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I was, I mean, I was an adult mm, yeah. then and making adult decisions. Right, yeah. Right. When you're a teenager, yeah, hiding things from your parents is not the best. Right. Before we went on the air, uh, we were talking a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in, in engineering world. Mm-hmm. Still quite few, very few women yeah. engineers, I think. 7% of mechanical engineers are mm. women in this, yeah. in this country. Yeah. Is there, do you feel a need to, I don't know, overcompensate? Do you feel a need to, <laughs> you know, is is there that? Yeah, there's that. I, I, I definitely want to be the most prepared person in the room. Um, it took me a while to get there. There's just a lot to know in mechanical engineering or in any engineering. There are a lot of different kinds. And so it took me a while to decide on the kind that I wanted to be, which is design and construction. Um, and then from there, I would, if I knew something was coming up, like I know we're going to discuss, you know, hazardous gases and how to build for them. And then I would study fire code the night before, because if you're the only blonde woman in a, in a room full of engineers and construction managers and dudes, you want to have your facts right. Because mm-hmm. the good and the bad is that if you're the one who looks different than everybody, um, you'll stand out. That mm-hmm. can be great because then you're the, the rock star in the room. And that can be terrible when you misstep. Mm. Are there, uh, I, don't, I don't know, have you experienced... The downside of that, you know, what, what we what we think of is is, is happening. At least it was presented in yeah. popular culture. You, you know, the stereotypes and you mean uh, and the people, barriers, and people the, being unsupportive, people or, being unsupportive, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think um, I've I've started to track it. I actually wanted to graph it once every two weeks. Someone says something just outright offensive that you just it's stunning and it can be someone younger than me sometimes it's another woman you know that that just says something so stupid that they they truly think that women's minds aren't built for engineering it's about once every two weeks and then um in general yeah there are a lot of a lot of you know what's a nice girl like you doing here So once every two weeks, that's, yeah, that's that seems right. like a lot. I would I, I yeah. would have hoped we'd have made progress. So how do how do we combat that? I would have thought so too. I feel like I combat it by um, not making a big deal and continuing my work and continuing to show up and do as good or a better job um, than than the guys in the room. Mm. And then also to know who your allies are. Mm. I mean, sometimes I'll walk in and there'll be an older guy and I'll think, oh, this is going to be a problem. And he is the nicest, most supportive. And then he tells me later, oh, my daughter's studying to be an engineer. So you you never can get your back up and think, oh, God, these, these guys are going to be terrible. Because sometimes it's just the – you just never know. Mm. What do you love about engineering? You're a mechanical engineer. Oh, yeah. So much. I, I love it more than 
being on TV. I love it more than being on stage. I love um, solving these puzzles, and I love being helpful. So I love going into a situation where, say, a hospital is trying to seismic upgrade, and they've got a problem with all their windows, and they've got, you know, maybe a behavioral health lockdown and a NICU, and this complex puzzle with vulnerable people um, preparing for the worst. And you can come in, like, I can come in and actually make a plan that makes makes it all work and protects the humans involved. I mean, that is, so, I mean, I just get like goosebumps talking about it. It's really exciting. You have to do it within code, within the rules. You have to do it within budget. You have to do it on schedule. You have to know, hey, it's going to start pouring rain at this time. So we need to have these windows sealed up. We can't move these patients around, you know, because they're, they're immune deficient. We have to have certain pressure relationships. That is really exciting stuff. And just the bigness of it. I was on a $500 million project at Intel recently, and the foundation they had to dig was like a canyon. It's just massive and muddy, which mm. I loved. Yeah, there you go. That's your. <laughs> that's the, the fourth pillar there. Um, so what what will it take to get more women into STEM? I think just this. I think um, letting them know uh, that it's fun, that there's real money, that there's real flexibility, that even if they decide to become a parent, um, they can leave the industry for five years and come back and be relevant, that they could work part-time from home. Um, that there's travel in it, there's international travel if you want that, um, and that it's a revolutionary act in some ways. You know, it's still a revolutionary act. Instead of um, women's studies, you know, maybe study electrical engineer. That's that's as much a statement. Hmm. Um, so I had a th- uh, thought and I just lost it. You um, want to be an engineer now. I want to be an engineer right? now. That's right. You're that's, just regretting that's, that's all right. your career choices. I'm regretting every career choice. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, especially the money part. Um, yeah, it's good. Good money. So that's and I, it's, I, and it's, I, it's I think tell it's, girls right. And, it's a tough thing to talk about because it's a kind of a crass thing to talk about. We're you know we're, we're, we're polite people don't talk about money and how much they make. Um, but I think if you're a kid whose parents maybe can't pay for college, so you're going to take a loan, or maybe can't support you past your 18th birthday, which was the case for me. They said, you know, your 18th birthday, your present is a month free rent. Um, th- then you need to think about how much money you want to make because then you can help your family because then Mm. you can take your sister on a ski trip then you can help your niece do things then you can have a car that always runs Mm -hmm. you can buy a home right those are all pluses i I know what i was uh, remembering you talk in the book about some of these things crystallized for you as you would work your summer jobs yeah and and you knew you didn't want to do that yeah for, for your job the rest of your life yeah. You go, parents, go ahead and let your kids get the crummiest summer job they can get. You know, fast food, or I just did a lot of shoveling and uh, planting and yard work and just hot, nasty work. Mm. And that is what is available to you um, if you don't have any education, mm. unfortunately. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Right now we're Hearing a portion of a conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. And we'll have more with Christine McKinley following this break. I am Dr. Susan Madsen, director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project, with ideas for becoming more resilient. We often think as confidence is how we look, act, and carry ourselves in front of others. However, true confidence is internal. It is demonstrated in our thought patterns and how we respond to situations. 
It can also play a pivotal role in building resilience. When you do hard things, you gain confidence. This confidence can also assure you of your ability to conquer the next hard thing that comes along. Or, in other words, it helps you build resilience. Confidence is not just thinking about things. It can only be strengthened by doing. Research has shown that confidence is truly a choice. We can choose to change our assumptions, perspectives, thoughts, and behaviors. Confidence is something we can learn and actively work to develop. Confidence can be developed by taking risks, getting comfortable with failing more often, practicing self-compassion, discovering gifts and strengths, increasing self-understanding, finding your passions and voice, learning and growing continuously, and serving others. Next time you find yourself in a difficult situation, try practicing self-compassion, bouncing back from mistakes and failures, and remembering that you have already made it through many challenging situations in the past, and you can do it again. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are hearing excerpts from a conversation from 2017 with mechanical engineer, musician, and author Christine McKinley. Her musical Gracie and the Atom won a Portland Drammy for original score, and her book Physics for Rockstars is out published in 2014. Here's another excerpt from my conversation. I want to uh, get into the musician side of side of you. You. you uh, there must be an artistic need there, right? So yeah. it's, you're doing mechanical engineering during yeah. the day, and but you you're a musician as well. Yes. Tell me about about that side. Well, I started uh, I started playing bass in college, um, so I started really early as I was studying mechanical engineering. I was really studying um, songwriting and and how to hand, handle gear on stage and and how to make money as a musician and. Um, I just love I just love what a, a well constructed song does to to our brain. I mm. just I absolutely am in love with music, and I still try and stay current on what's coming out. And um, I just don't think that'll ever go away for me. Mm. So the, the two ongoing tracks, of course, then you write as well, and mm-hmm. and you get muddy. Uh, so those are the four <laughs> four things. Um, uh, but, but compare and contrast, then that you're working engineering, and then. You're well, playing as a musician, composing as, as a musician. You know, engineering design and songwriting are not that different um, in some ways. Uh, you, you need to, um, you need to like, it's hard to explain, but in thermodynamics, when um, steam states change, for example, um, you sort of pit like maybe a temperature will stay the same, but it turns into uh, a more wet steam. It's the same when key, uh, a key changes in a song you you sort of keep your foot on you can sing one note and that one note shows up in the next chord so i'm not explaining this well but there's just know that it's real similar thinking where you need to stay organized but you also need to reach so mm. in design you need to stay organized you need to stay within code stay within structure but you need to then reach creatively and think now where could i put this air handling unit it's the same writing songs mm. you can't make the drummer suddenly completely change what she's doing but um, there needs to be consistency, and, and you need to allow the listener to follow. Hmm. 
Uh, let me just read this uh, brief uh, paragraph here, what Gracie and the Atom is about. Uh, so it's described as the soundtrack to a, uh, the musical play about life, death, physics, and Catholic school. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's accurate so far. Great big hooks, a choir of girls' voices to back the vocals. That, and so when Gracie loses her father, she's sent off to Catholic school. Uh, while Sister Ludwina uh, preaches physics, Sister Francis d- dissects go- the Gospels, Archimedes slides into his tub, Jesus walks in Galilee, and Einstein searches for the theory of everything. Gracie looks to them all to answer her questions. Why is she at Our Lady of Peace uh, High School if she's not Catholic? How can she get a message from her father? Where is the mother she never knew? Her new classmates help her with the details of purgatory, Ouija boards, and uh, superhero saints. But nothing in this new territory, protons, prayer, miracles, and mechanics can help Gracie escape gravity or prepare her for what she finds. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> wow. And, and <laughs> I assume some of this is autobiographical? Yeah, some of it is. I actually lost my dad um, a week after I graduated from college, my stepdad, who encouraged me to be a mechanical engineer and was really just a great parent. Um, so I lost him right after. Um, Gracie loses her dad right before starting high school. And she goes on a similar uh, journey that I did. It, it, when I lost my dad, he suddenly he died in a fire. I thought, you know, I know all of this about physics. I understand, um, you know, relativity as well as I can. Somewhere in there, he's he's able to communicate with me. I had this really sort of magical, like there's got to be a way with everything I know to understand why this happens, where I'm going to go, and how I can how he can stay in touch with me. Hmm. Let's hear a, a song. Uh, this is a uh, one of the briefer songs. Let's hear it. It's called Falling Down. Anything you want to say to set this up? Um, this is a duet, right? This is a um, in the, in the show in the musical. This is a duet between um, two girls, two best friends. And I was told in order to write a musical, there really needs to be a love interest. And I I uh, ignored that advice. Mm-hmm. And to me, the love interest is these um, girls, these uh, high school girls, really watching out for each other. Let's hear this. This is uh, falling down. This is from Christine McKinley's uh, musical called Gracie and the Atom. die before me can I walk with your ghost you'd be so light then you could teach me to float that's how we get around without falling
That is the uh, the song uh, "Falling Down" from Christine McKinley's musical "Gracie and uh, the Atom." Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, is that you singing? Yeah, that's me singing mm-hmm. and Tracy Grammer. Okay. Oh, Tracy Grammer. Great. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the the uh, Gracie mm-hmm. says she she wants to escape gravity, right? And, and if she does, she'll come back for. Yeah. For for her friend. It, it, yeah. It, it's that it's that kind of friendship when when you think like if I die first, I'm not gonna leave you alone. I'll hang around and help you in any way I can. Mm-hmm. So that's a portion of uh conversation for twenty seventeen with Christine McKinley, who's a mechanical engineer, musician and author. Her book, Physics for Rock Stars, was published in twenty fourteen and she hosted Brad Meltzer's Decoded on History Channel and Under New York on the Discovery Channel as well. Our thanks to Christine McKinley. You can find her at christinemckinley.com. Earlier in the program, of course, we talked with Senator Maisie Hirono, who's out with a new memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. And uh, so that is out as well. Our appreciation to Senator Hirono. We uh, thank you for listening today to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The historic settlements underneath Willard Bay were submerged twice, first by years of dirt, dust, and debris, and then again by a flooded reservoir. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Buried under the Willard Bay Reservoir on the northeast end of Great Salt Lake is not one, but two human settlements. Beneath 99,000 acres of water is a historic Fremont village, as well as a Mormon town, giving evidence that certain geographies naturally encourage the growth of community across human history in Utah. Before being drowned by the construction of a dam in the 1950s, The area around Willard Creek on the eastern shore of Great Salt Lake was a temperate world, perfect for human settlement. The lake effect weather that causes mild winters on the lake's east coast was ideal for farming, with grasslands and stream beds easily diverted for irrigation. Hunting for birds and animals drawn to the water was easy, so it makes sense that two human settlements flourished there centuries apart. When the Mormons first settled Willard Creek in 1853, they had no idea that a Fremont town just as large as their own lay beneath them. They started to find clues, pots, arrowheads, and other artifacts, as well as 70 earthen mounds in the area. The Fremont peoples indigenous to Utah were known for their farming expertise along the Wasatch Front, and the settlement buried at Willard was one of the largest. There is a large circular mud wall around the village with a two-mile circumference as well as both round and square pit houses, implying a shift in Fremont housing design around the 12th century. Unfortunately, archaeological looting and other construction leveled all the remaining Fremont archaeological sites. The final blow to the area came in 1950 when the Willard Bay Reservoir was built, providing irrigation, drinking water, and one of the state's most popular recreational marinas to the surrounding population. Construction of the reservoir required using the ground as fill for the dikes, and in the process, some construction workers reported at least 20 human bodies, likely Fremont people, were unearthed. How many more were lost or moved in the creation of the dam is unknown. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, 
I'm Megan Weiss. Floods and wildfires, winds and heat, the climate is changing. And this week we'll talk with the novelists and journalists who are writing it, while we and our children live it. I wasn't aware of anyone having written fiction about that anger of the young on the matters of climate, so I wanted to do it in my own fashion. Writing the climate change story, next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week on The Splendid Table, we learned about the tradition of the summer kitchen in Ukraine. We have a brilliant, simple idea for a new kind of cream corn. And we take your hot weather cooking questions with The New Yorker Magazine's food correspondent, Helen Rosner. It's all coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.